Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to this edition of the Richard Urban Show. We present news and views from God's point of view. We're very happy to have Marshall Wilson on today. He is a candidate, an independent candidate for the governor of West Virginia. So please introduce yourself. Hey, Richard. It's a real honor to be here. Thanks for making time for me. And Thanks for putting up with, uh, you know, me trying to get here and get ready and get linked up and everything. And of course, I'd like to introduce my son, Joe. This is Josiah. And uh, we are actually at the Capitol right now. We have uh, just taken part in the protest against the governor's uh, completely unethical mandates on uh, public school sports. And, and, you know, of course, the real issue here is that, uh, um, you know, the they're not even, they're not evenly applied, they're not fairly applied. And then of course, none of the, none of the restrictions that we're placing on um, public school students apply to the Greenbrier for some reason. And no one can explain to me why that is. So Joe and I came to the Capitol, we drove five hours to get here this morning so we could be here for this, uh, for this protest. And I managed to, uh, to get away from that just in time to uh, get in the car and call you. Okay. Great. Well, thanks for being on today. Yeah, well, you mentioned about the COVID-19. We're certainly going to talk about that. Uh, in general, could you share the three most important points of your platform for governor as to why you're running for governor? Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Of course, you know I'm a, I'm a sitting delegate from South Berkeley County, and I have stood up for the Constitution, not only of this state, but of the United States. Uh, for the past four years as a delegate and before that for 20 years as an infantry officer in the army I've upheld and defended the Constitution and uh, frankly that is my platform is the Constitution as you and I both know all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness so the first thing I want to do is restructure the, the uh, uh, executive branch of our state government to function according to the Constitution, because as the chief of the executive branch, the governor, I have the authority to do that. Uh, the next thing that I want to do is I want to establish um, uh, not just effective and focused government, focused on serving the people under the Constitution, upholding their rights, but actually I want to, I want to teach the federal branch, I mean, I keep saying the federal branch, the, uh, the executive branch, uh, customer service. I want to teach them that they're here to serve you, and that it's not enough to uh, just tell you four times that you've done your paperwork wrong and then demand that you, uh, you pay a fee to register all four times, but rather actually sit down with you and say, well, Mr. Urban, we understand what you're trying to accomplish here. We would like to help you with that. Uh, you know, we'll help you to succeed rather than just simply telling you to teach it a little bit of, of customer service. And finally, what I would do is I would use concepts so firmly in the executive branch that no future governor or candidate for governor for the next few generations will arrogate to himself the position of thinking that he's in charge of the state. Um, we don't want any tyrannies here. Uh, you know, we've we fought a war against the British over that, and, and uh, I don't see any reason we should establish a new tyranny here in West Virginia. And I want my kids to raise their kids in a free, just, prosperous, and secure land. So I'm going to do everything that I can to establish that here and then to establish it in such a way that the people of this state who, who are from whom the entire authority of the government is drawn, the people understand how critically important it is to maintain that constitutional governance and they will fight for it 
they will uh, elect people who will uphold it, and then they will hold those people accountable for generations to come. Uh, that is my hope. That's my, uh, my intent. And uh, given the opportunity, I think that I can actually accomplish those things. Okay. Well, thank you for that. So with the whole thing about the lockdowns and these different mandates, you know, I guess you've, uh, of course, just talked about the constitutional freedoms. How do you feel about that? Like, will we need to, you know, restructure our laws to facilitate that? Like, I know Wisconsin, although I now, now the governor made another decree over there, you know, they expired the mandates after 60 days. I mean, do we need to look at our laws again? Absolutely. And I thank you for bringing that up. Uh, a couple of things here. First of all, um, we need to, the, the people need to enforce, uh, need to enforce the mandate of following the Constitution on their government officials, on their elected employees. Now, you know, I've already mentioned that. That's the, that's the most critical part because the people actually have the power. The other thing is that the legislature, as the direct representatives of the people, needs to do its job and, as you say, restructure things, uh, rewrite legislation so that, um, so that these things are straightened out. For, for instance, and I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, but for instance, one of the things is that the governor has been able to perform a certain way because, because he, um, he's able to twist the verbiage in the exact in the uh, emergency powers section of the state code so that needs to be rewritten so that it can never be misunderstood that same way again uh, what i'm getting at is that um, basically the way that our our um, our code is written when it comes mm -hmm. to emergency powers once the governor declares an emergency he's effectively accountable to no one unless the legislature calls themselves back into special session so my recommendation would be that there be a, uh, a requirement in the law that within 30 days of the governor declaring an emergency, the legislature must come into special session. Something I think that's along a good time lines. period. Yeah. 30 days. Yes, that's sir. enough. All right. So something along those lines. And then also uh, there should be a definition. Most laws have very specific definitions written at the beginning of the, the bill. Uh, that defines all the terms in the bill. Well, nowhere in West Virginia code that I found is the term emergency defined. However, in my work as an emergency planner for the National Guard for years, the, the definition that we used was imminent, critical, an emergency situation where you have imminent, in other words, it's coming. It's, there's no, way, no two ways about it, imminent destruction of critical, key critical infrastructure, which is roads, bridges, buildings, things like that, or massive loss of human life, or uh, massive destruction of private property, such as you know, uh, people's homes and things like that. Right. So if, if it meet those three criteria, it is not an emergency. And not only those three criteria, but each of those must be imminent. Otherwise you have no emergency. So the fact that he can just randomly declare an emergency with no actual emergency by that. Yeah, existing, I agree. Is, Even the first, uh, yeah. Yeah. So we need to find. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, I remember the first time he declared the COVID so-called emergency. He was saying, well, eat out at Bob's uh, Evans. And then about two hours later, he said, oh, my gosh, we have one case of COVID. 
shut all the restaurants. I thought this guy's a lunatic. And what did he just say most recently? You need to be afraid. Oh, what? You know, listen, uh, you will never hear me say that as your governor. What you will hear me say is we have a situation. Here are the likely ramifications of that situation. Here are the resources that your government is providing to support you as you take care of your family and your business and your home. We're willing to do the, we have these resources available and we are acting to support you as you take care of your business. What we're not going to say is everybody panic. Oh my God, we're the only people around here. The government is the only people around here with the resources and the power and the authority to do anything. So everybody panic and do exactly what we tell you to do uh, so that we can uh, fix everything for you. Um, first of all, the government can't fix everything for you. It only has very strict, limited powers. It does have some resources. It does have some, uh, some capabilities and even some expertise it can put at your disposal. But what it can't do is it can't make COVID go away. It can't make a hurricane go away. What it can do is help you prepare for it and then help you deal with the ramifications of it. That's right. it. That's it. That's how the government works. So uh, as your governor, I will, first of all, make sure we have a plan. And, you know, like I say, I wrote these plans for years for Louisiana and for, for Maryland. I wrote plans on how the government would deal with emergencies that came along. And that included everything from a terrorist attack to a hurricane, to a flood, snowfall, uh, to a pandemic. Those were all parts of the plans that I wrote. And in every case, in every situation, in every scenario, there were some foundational principles. And one is the executive branch of the government has no authority to order the people of the state to do anything unless, unless those people are uh, depriving other people of the free exercise of their natural rights. So if I go through a neighborhood and I say, hey guys, there's gonna be a big flood coming this way, please evacuate. And then as your governor, I will also make executive branch resources available. I'll say, we have transportation here if you need it, we can get you to high ground. Please evacuate, please not get out of your house or we're going to arrest you. Hey, it's your house. It's your life. It's your decision to make, but we're here to help. We can get you to say to a safe area. Please come with us. Um, so what we got now is the governor, instead of saying, Hey, we want to help you. We understand there's a situation we'd like to help out. What he's actually saying is do this now, or you're in, in uh, trouble with the law. Yeah. I see where you're coming from there. Definitely, right. yeah, we definitely need to work work on that. Speaking of mandates, one thing I wanted to ask you about, like what's your take or opinion on the forced vaccination mandate for West Virginia? Like no school, no vaccination, no school. What would you do okay. in, about that? The government no business telling you what medicines to give your children. The government has no business interfering between you and your doctor. You and your doctor decide what's best for you and what's best for your kids, period. Okay, so you would obviously, so would you get, get rid of uh, or suggest, I know the legislature has to do that, like removing all mandates or minimum. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, the legislation. Go ahead. Yes, thank you for recognizing that. Of course, the legislature has to be involved the governor doesn't have the authority to make those changes, but um, as the governor, I would, as the governor, I would absolutely the uh, removal of the mandates. Okay, so you support um, the removal of the mandates. 
would would an interim staff being have like religious yes, conscientious exemptions or or just remove oh, the absolutely mandate i mean uh well, I mean, I would work toward removing the mandate altogether, but but absolutely, whatever steps we can make in that direction are an improvement, of course. Okay, yeah. The, the government has very limited powers and has usurped a lot of authority that doesn't belong to it. And uh, as your governor, it will be, you know, a foundational principle, a guiding principle of everything that I do to devolve all of that authority back to where it belongs, namely to the people. Okay. Yeah, I know there's been other efforts um, brought up in other states and some bills in our own legislature to do things like make sure that doctors don't discriminate against patients who aren't vaccinated. And what do you think about efforts like that? Well, I'm, uh, I'm not sure that I want to get into that because the doctor has a right to make a choice too. So if the doctor says, I'm not going to treat someone who hasn't been vaccinated, then, uh, you know, that doctor has that right. Yeah, I think it was t it's more about, I guess, yeah, and other ones deal with informed consent, like more right. giving better cons uh, information to the uh, patient. Absolutely. Now that's that actually now you're striking at the heart of the matter. I would absolutely require that uh, the manufacturers and the uh, the uh, actual dispensers of the medications provide labeling that actually gives valid information on the on the uh, the medicines on the uh, vaccinations that are that are being given. Um, so I would end mandates given if I were the king for a day and I could make everything happen, I would end mandates. I would require that uh, that all valid and correct and and uh, understandable information be provided to uh, patients and to their parents if the patients are children. But going even beyond that, I would require that there actually be studies. And that those the results of those studies be made public to indicate the uh, the effectiveness. Um, so you, the the information that would have to be provided to the public would be what's in the vaccine, uh, the effectiveness based on various types of studies. There are a number of different types of studies that need to be made, and then of course a strict accounting for the potential ramifications, the uh, side effects of uh, of using these these vaccinations. All of that information, you have a right to that information before you make a decision on whether or not you're going to, uh, you're going to take a drug or uh, uh, be administered a vaccination. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I, th I think that's uh, very true. How do you feel about like um, school choice, choice in education? Well, I mean, if you, if you look at my record, I could say the same thing about uh, uh, health liberty if you look at my record as a delegate you'll see that i absolutely support it um, when senate bill 451 was under consideration i stood on the house floor for almost three hours and offered i believe it was 15 or 16 different offering different levels and different types of school choice so i went away from uh you know uh, an unlimited number of charter schools basically anyone who wants to start as long as they can meet the academic standards, they can have a charter school, all the way down to finally, okay, we can only have five of them. Um, I also offered an amendment that would allow homeschoolers to get a credit on taxes owed. So only if you actually owe taxes, but on taxes owed for approved expenditures for home. So if you buy, you know, a, um, 
if you buy a curriculum and you use it for your kids in homeschooling, you can be reimbursed uh, for that through a tax credit on taxes owed. And the reason that that's acceptable to me is because the Constitution of the state says state must provide a free and efficient education for your kids. Uh, if you're not using the state's um, facilities and, and uh, resources, then and you're using your own, then fine, you get a tax rebate. Uh, that was the only one that even came close to passing, and it was it was defeated 50 to 49. Because oh. one delegate who would have voted for it wasn't around. It would have been 50 to 50. It still would have been defeated. But uh, so I think I offered 15 different amendments over the course of three hours in support of school choice, or I like to call it education liberty. Yeah, I, I think that's important. A very imp important, uh, you know, area. And speaking of education, like, so what's your opinion about like the common core standards? Could you talk a little about West Virginia, the standards we have or don't have? Well, um, I think the place that I would start with that is that we, the people of West Virginia, get to decide what our standards are. And I think that we should decide those standards via uh, people who are accountable to the people rather than the State Board of Education, which is apparently, according to a, um, a court case that took place, a judge's ruling a few years ago, uh, the State Board of Education has been established as a fourth monolithic, unaccountable branch of government which is completely unacceptable. It should be accountable to the people who uh, pay the taxes that make it possible and who, whose children it serves. Um, that would be the first thing. Secondly, I think that all education should be, dis uh, the operation should be disseminated rather than centralized. I think that every uh, school system should be accountable directly to the people in that county and uh, each school should be accountable to the people in that community. Um, and the, the curricula should be the decision of the local school system and the local schools based on standards that are established by the State Board of Education with input from the legislature with the people's, the people's representatives, if that makes sense. So effectively what you would have is these minimum standards are set at the state level with right. input from the people, with input from the people statewide through their legislators and then that's applied across the state. You know, by the time you graduate, you, you, you know, you finish the third grade, you have to be able to do math at this level. You have to read and write at this level. Otherwise you don't pass the third grade. But in addition to that, the way that it's taught should be decentralized. In other words, the individual teacher should have control over that classroom. Uh, the individual administrators of that school should have control over their school. They mm. should determine how things are done there. And the only thing that should come from the outside and be pushed down is the standards. In other words, if the kids aren't meeting these standards, they're not passing. If the school has too many kids who are not meeting these standards, the school is failing, and uh, apparently the uh, the school needs to be restructured or the administration needs to be retrained. Okay. But the idea, the idea that there are faceless bureaucrats sitting in a windowless building in Charleston, you know, issuing edicts to the individual teachers and telling them how to run their classrooms is completely unacceptable. Our teachers yeah, are intelligent, educated adults who, who should be their jobs without too much interference. Yeah, I like the idea of decentralization. And I mean, that goes along with the idea of being able to choose, you know, whether you want to homeschool or have a small group Absolutely. of home, homeschoolers, whatever. Yes, sir. It's the same principle. You know, the same principle that we all 
responsibility um, and, and wherever you have responsibility, you have authority. So I have responsibility for myself, that's called liberty. I therefore have authority over my, or I have authority over myself, that's called liberty, I therefore am responsible for myself. You know, if you've got a, an educated professional adult who, uh, you know, is in a classroom and has in the education they need to run the classroom, they should also have the support of the administration uh, to run that classroom. In other words, I was a very disruptive student. I hate to admit it, but it's true. And uh, the schools that I went to, my teachers were allowed, they, they controlled their classroom. And when I was disruptive, my teacher could say, Marshall, get out, you know, go sit in the hallway. Other people are here, they wanna learn. If you don't wanna learn, go sit in the hallway and don't learn. And you know, after that happened a couple of times, I got the message. You know, I didn't wanna go sit in the hallway. I wanted to be a part of what was going on in the classroom. So I decided to pay attention. I'm not going to say that I was never disruptive again. I'm just going to say I got the idea and I started trying to apply it. And, uh, you know, having spoken with teachers all over the state, I understand that basically that control has been taken away from them. Uh, not only that, but they've got students who fail to meet the standards. So you got the State Board of Education establishing the standard. The teacher knows that, that in that classroom they have to meet that standard. Otherwise, the teacher is not doing uh, his or her job. So the students are not meeting that standard but the teacher is not allowed to hold the student to the standard. So the teacher is held to the standard, but the student is not. So you've, you know, and I've, I've heard this statewide, some parent will get mad and go see the administrator and administrators will actually, and I'm just telling you what teachers have told me, will literally change students' grades or will order the teacher to change grades. Wow. That's completely unacceptable. The student gets the, the grade they earned. That's and right. you know, I. I'm going to tell you straight up, I, I earned some grades that I wish I hadn't, but that taught me to do what I had to, to earn better grades. And that's, that's, that's what needs to happen. The teachers need to run their classrooms. Now I'm not saying that every teacher is a perfect angel or a wonderful person. Some of them have issues and those issues need to be dealt with, but that doesn't mean that when we have students who have issues that those issues don't need to be dealt with. I needed somebody to tell me, look, we're here to learn. If you're not here to learn, go sit in the hallway. I needed right. somebody to tell me, look, here's the standard. You didn't meet the standard. You get a bad grade. I needed that as a student. And, and our, the students we have today need that as well. Yeah, I've seen that. I've done some work in the schools with uh, absence center education. So I know that. And I was actually used to work in DC schools. I know how the some 25 years teachers were anxious to retire because they couldn't like dismiss a student like one student wreak havoc on the right. class they could not dismiss right. them you know what i mean well you know i mean you're paying taxes and you're sending your kids to school so they can get an education and you are trusting the educators to educate them and the educators are trying but your neighbor's kid is making it impossible and by the way once again i was the neighbor's kid it was making it impossible the neighbor's kids making it impossible but the teacher's not allowed to hold them accountable how is your kid going to get what you're paying for? How is your kid going to get the education they need and they're working for? It's, it's only right to hold the individual student accountable for his or her behavior. And, um, you know, I'm not talking about beating children or trying to embarrass them or, you know, calling them. I'm not talking about anything like that. It's just, hey, if you don't want to learn, we'll find somewhere else for you to be where you don't, you know, you don't have to be engaged. But these guys, these guys want to learn. Yeah. And they deserve the opportunity to do so. You'd think that was common sense. Speaking of that, I wonder something that's close to my heart. Do you think that in like sexual health education or or call it character education, 
should um, sexual absence before marriage be the expected standard for school-aged children? That was common knowledge, like even during the Clinton administration. Do you think that's the right standard? Sexual absence before I, marriage? I absolutely think that's the right. I, I, I absolutely think that's the right standard. I just don't think it's up to the schools to teach it. I don't think mm -hmm. the schools should be teaching anything about it. They shouldn't be teaching you to uh, use a condom. Shouldn't be teaching you that, it's not, that you shouldn't be involved in sex. That's just, that's not the school's mission. The school's mission is, you, is to teach you to read and understand what you're reading, to listen and understand what you've heard, to analyze the information you've gathered by listening and hearing, I mean, listening and reading, to synthesize a valid response, to effectively communicate that response through reading and, and uh, through writing and, and spoken word, and to do math. If you can do those six things, you are educated. That is right. what the education system exists to do. All this other social engineering, everything else along those lines needs to go away. Not that it doesn't need to be taught, and not that there aren't families and communities that are failing to teach that to the kids. I'm just saying it's not the teacher's responsibility. Yeah. The teacher has enough responsibility managing their own classroom and teaching their own subjects, and that is more than enough to ask of them. Right. Well, I meant more in the context of most schools teach some kind of character or, sex or sexual health education slash. So if they're going to teach it, then what should be the emphasis? Otherwise, like I would agree with you, you remove it. But I, I think the great majority of schools have some kind of HIV prevention slash sex education slash whatever, you know. If, if you're going to have it, I think that abstinence has to be a focal point because it is it is the only proven protect, uh, you know, method of protecting yourself from all sorts of issues that, that arise from premarital and, and teenage sex. Okay, fair enough. So um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, what's your um, opinion about like uh, so-called red flag laws and, you know, the Second Amendment rights? I am a staunch supporter of Second Amendment rights. I have an A-plus from the WVCDL. Um, I am one of the primary reasons that the parking lot bill got passed through the House, the bill that says that, you know, if you go to work and you happen to have a gun in your car, as long as you leave the gun in your car and you lock your car in the parking lot, there's no issue. I mean, that's just common sense. Um, now, if you pull the gun out and you start waving it around, well, sure, you're brandishing a firearm and you're, you know, you're acting like an idiot. And you're not being responsible and you need to be held accountable. But um, the Second Amendment is, I'm an absolutist on the Second Amendment. I don't believe that it's about hunting, although hunting is great. I don't even believe it's about self-defense, although defending yourself and your family is your responsibility and you, you have to be able to do it. I believe that it's about protecting yourself and your family from the encroachment of an overweening government. That's the real reason we have the Second Amendment, and I'm an absolutist. Okay, fair enough. So I'm, I, I think red flag laws are an encroachment upon the Second Amendment, and I think any encroachment upon the Second Amendment is an attempt to make us subjects rather than citizens. Okay, all right. Well, turning to another topic, like what do you think about the business inventory tax or personal property tax, personal income tax? What would be your take on those? Okay, thank you. Thanks for laying those out. Okay, uh, business and inventory. That is the most insane, asinine tax I've ever heard of in my life. You purchase inventory for your, in purchasing it, 
you pay sales tax, which is a consumption tax, of course. Okay, well and good. And then you put it on your shelves and you sell it. And if you sell it, then the person who purchases it pays uh, tax on the, same, on the same item. You leave it on your shelf, the state government wants to get that tax money that they're not getting because you haven't sold it. So they impose an inventory tax on you which means that you have to pay a tax on the inventory just because you have it. So you've already paid sales tax on it. At some point in the future, when you sell it, you're, the, the buyer is going to pay sales tax on it. Interim, the state wants to collect more money on it, pay inventory tax. That's insane. It's asinine and it's unethical. Uh, property tax. Uh, I think you probably know, Richard, we've talked before, uh, you know that I have a master's in national security and my focus was on how free societies devolve into totalitarian ones. Well, one of the basic principles of the progressive movement back at the, in the uh, beginning of the 20th century was that they wanted to confiscate all property, whether that's real property, meaning land or, uh, or durable goods, such as, uh, you know, vehicles and things like that. So what they wanted to do was they wanted to confiscate all property and then require so that the government literally owns everything. All, and keep in mind that real property is the only source of real wealth. And what I mean by that is unless you own land, you cannot develop anything. And, and I know that in the information age, that sounds like it's not true. And, and, and it's a little farther removed from the fact, from the, uh, our experience now in the information age, but frankly, what it comes down to is you can't make anything without taking it out of the ground. That means agriculture or mining or drilling, right? Mm -hmm. Everything ultimately comes out of the ground at some point. On top of that, even if you're not in the manufacturing, but you're in the distribution or the sales or retail or whatever, you still have to have a spot on the ground. And a lot of people are going to come back at me and say, well, what about Amazon? What about sales online? the item, the physical item that you're purchasing still has to occupy space. It has to be right. stored somewhere. There has to be a fulfillment center or whatever. So the progressives offer this idea of the government confiscating all property and then charging the people, the citizens, rent on their own property after they'd confiscated it. Well, that, that idea didn't fly. That like idea communism. didn't fly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, well, it's the progressives. That idea didn't fly, so what they did was they took another shot at it and instead called it property tax. You get to keep your property, you still have the title to it, unless you don't pay the tax. Then we take your property away from you. So the property is confiscated if you don't pay the tax. Well, that sounds an awful lot to me like I'm actually renting my property from the government. In other words, they actually managed to confiscate our, our uh, property by saying that they own it if we don't pay rent. In other words, the property tax on it. So I believe that the property tax is one of the most unethical and moral things that's ever been done to the people of the United States. All right, let's talk about uh, income tax. First of all, um, income tax was not legal under the Constitution until, what was it, the 17th Amendment, Richard, I believe? 17th Amendment allowed for the establishment of an income tax. And of course, that was to pay for our wars overseas. So um, the idea that you are going to charge someone in such a way as to punish them for producing more and earning more and creating more wealth is counterproductive in ways that it's difficult to even explain. It's a terrible idea. Frankly, in my estimation, if we were to do this thing right, there would be a flat consumption tax across the okay. board. That's it. 
flat consumption tax. You, you mean just uh, something sales tax? Is that a consumption yes, sir. tax? Effectively, yes. Effectively, yes. A flat sales tax across the idea being that what you're really paying for is the opportunity to engage in a free and secure market. So the government, if it does its job, uh, maintains the institutions that allow for a free and secure market and for the privilege of engaging, pay a few cents on the dollar in it. Other than that, I, I don't believe there should be uh, other taxes, shouldn't be property taxes. There shouldn't be sales. I mean, there shouldn't be uh, income tax. And, uh, you know, it's just the other taxes, as far as I'm concerned, are completely unethical. I noticed most of the property tax, and here in Jefferson County, you have the so-called excess levy, but most of it goes for the schools. So how would the schools be funded or wouldn't they? Or a lot of it goes for schools. Well, the schools would have, yeah, yeah, the levy does. Now, if the people of a certain area determine that they want to tax themselves to maintain the schools, they have every right to do that. But really what it comes down to is this, this state government has a lot of money. The problem is it wants to spend the money on things that are none of its business. So if we can pare the government down and focus it on its constitutional duties, there will be plenty of money to maintain its constitutional duties. Okay, that makes sense. Definitely makes sense. So one thing I wanted to address, I know it comes up and I saw the video on your website about people might say, oh, well, you know, Mr. Wilson's running as independent. You know, if I vote for him, that's like voting for Joe Salonga. By the way, I don't agree with that. But anyway, say whatever you'd like about that. I'm not Joe Salonga. Absolutely, thank Mr. you. Salonga. <laughs> yeah, all right, ben. so a couple of things here. Yeah, thank you. A couple of things here. First of all, um, the primary argument I hear is that I'm stealing votes from the Republicans. Okay, well, a couple of things about that. First of all, it's not just Republicans who are voting for me. First of all, I have, I, I keep saying first of all, I'm sorry. I have the endorsement of the Constitution Party. All right, that's one thing. A lot of libertarians have told me they're voting for me because they recognize that my constitutional stance is, is actually what uh, allows the people to have their rights, allows the people to exercise their rights freely is a constitutional government. And they, you know, libertarians recognize that when I uphold and defend the constitution, that will allow them to live the way they wanna live. Um, a lot of patriotic Democrats in this state you know, um, where I grew up in South Louisiana, there were a lot of people who were Democrats. They were good people. They paid their taxes. They served in the military. They went to church. They took care of their kids, helped them with their schoolwork. Good people who were patriots and are dumbfounded by what's happening with their party today, especially on the national level. Um, you know, a lot of those people are voting for me rather than the Democrat candidate. Uh, okay. And a lot of people have contacted me across the state. Um, and then a lot of Democrat, I mean, a lot of Republicans who believe in the Constitution, uh, who are dumbfounded that their party managed to choose uh, Jim Justice as the candidate, especially since his uh, unconstitutional mandates uh, are voting for me, have stated their support. So given all of that, I want to say that's a false argument in the first place. It's right. also false because this, the votes do not belong to the candidate. They don't belong to the party. They belong to the individual voter. Right. And if I earn a vote from a voter, I have not stolen it from anyone. That person has a right to vote for whoever they want. And exactly. finally, I'd like to say 
Yeah. Finally, I would like to say that if the Democrat does win and Jim Justice does lose, who's at fault here? Is it me for running, which is my right as a citizen, or is it the Republicans for putting forward such a terrible candidate? It's, yeah. it's obviously on them. It's, it's obviously on them. Had they put forward a better candidate, I wouldn't be here right now. I wouldn't be trying to run. I'd be supporting a good candidate. Well, that makes sense. By the way, what's the status of your case to get on the ballot? Is there any progress on that? No, sir. Actually, it was thrown out because the federal judge said that I slept on my rights by not filing immediately after uh, Jim Justice's unconstitutional executive order. He really believed that my rights were being stepped on that I would have I would have filed earlier and I mm. said well the problem is had I filed earlier before I actually tried to gather the necessary signatures you would have told me that my I didn't have a case because there was no injury because I hadn't actually tried to get the signatures and failed but now that I've tried to get the signatures and failed you're saying I have no because I should have sued a couple ago and he said right wow Okay, yeah. sorry to hear that, but yeah. nonetheless, wow. that's what I think. Wow, people can uh, write in, and we'll write in your name, and uh, that's a yes, good sir, thing. Yes, sir. Please. Yeah, write in your name on on the ballot. So, um, so to to conclude, like any other thoughts you'd like to share, or you know, I know we talked about some of them, but just to conclude, how you're differentiating yourself from the other candidates, and why should the uh, voters of West Virginia vote for you? Well, the primary thing is because I will uphold and defend the Constitution of West Virginia and of the United States, no matter what it costs me. The reason is because I love my kids and I want them to live in a free, just, prosperous, and secure land. And if I manage that, then you'll, you'll reap the same benefits. Um, on top of that, I do not believe that the government owns you or has any authority over you, uh, other than if you try to deprive someone else of their natural rights. That's the only time the government gets, should get involved. Um, I will work hard to make our government effective, functional, efficient, and humble. I want our government to be humble. I want our, uh, the people who work in our government and the departments of our government to recognize that you, the people, are in charge and that we're here to serve you. Okay, that's great. Wow. Okay, well, yeah. So uh, do be advised all the voters that you can write in uh, yes, Michael sir. Wilson on, on the ballot. If you would, please put the S on there. S dot Marshall Wilson. Is that, and, is that required or that won't matter? Well, according to the secretary of state, um, they will look for anything that looks like my name, uh, and count that. But frankly, uh, just to be sure, just to remove any doubt, let's put in the S period. Okay. If you don't mind. And, uh, let me see, right. There's my website, www.marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, for F-O-R-W-V.com, Marshall for W-V.com. Okay, I'll put Please. it up on the screen, too. Okay. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you very much for coming on today. We'll make this available on video and podcast for all the voters who uh, want to look at it, and we hope many do. So I do, do thank you for coming on today. So we've been uh, glad to have... S. Marshall Wilson on today. He is an independent candidate for governor of West Virginia. You can write his name in in the write-in section on November 3rd. Please. So, 
Thank yeah. you very much, Richard. I appreciate you more than I can tell you. Okay. I'm your host, Richard Urban. I'm coming to you from Historic Harper's Ferry. And do be blessed, and we will see you next time.